All right, Mark chapter 3. If you want to take a Bible, go there, Mark chapter 3. We always put the scripture on the screen for you. Uh, but if you can, get your hands on a copy of God's Word on your own Bible there. That'd be great. We also have Bibles in the seats there provided for you. So if you don't have one back at home and you're using that one, uh, take it home. It's our gift to you. We'd be really glad for you uh, to have that. Let me just, uh, let me come out here. I just want to shake some hands if I can. Let me just say what's up to some college guys. How's it going? What's up? How's it going? Yeah. How's it going? Good to see you. Hey, can I wrap you up? Let me just do this. All right. Here's my question. My question is, have we been doing that this week? That was awkward, huh? Have we been doing that? <laughs> I'm going somewhere. Uh, we've been doing that this week. We've been in this series that we're calling Two-Handed Faith. And the idea is that we, on every level of our faith, are, are really doing that. We're connecting with people. We're reaching out to people. Every now and again, it's awkward when you reach out to somebody. And like, what are you, I don't, what are you, right? You know what I'm talking about? I get that. It, and that happens. But, but really, the, the call for us in this series is to get a grip that our faith on every level is about reaching into the lives of people and, and even putting yourself in a vulnerable position where they kind of pull back, right, uh, with connecting with people and when you're doing so you're touching hands of you know like a college student and you never know what's in the dorm rooms of college is dirty right you know I mean you should have seen my dorm room it was disgusting and when we when we reach into people's lives and we connect with people it, it can be challenging it can be dirty and we don't know what we're getting into but it's it's thrilling it's 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 exciting because we we go into these places and we put our lives in these situations where we're really uh, dependent uh, upon the Lord. And so I just want to ask you, have you been doing that over the course of this past week? Since again, last week we talked about living out a, a two-handed faith, reaching into challenging places and connecting with people that maybe we don't usually connect with. And then really ourselves being connected with the bride of Christ, the church, and then really growing up in the Lord together as we connect with people and really do life close-knit. That's what we're seeking uh, to be as a church, and I just, man, I just hope that that's been true of, of all of us. And this is our third and final week in the series, Two-Handed Faith. And what we're looking at is really it's our mission strategy as a church, that we would reach, we would connect, and we would disciple, that we would be reached, that we would be connected with, and that we would also be discipled. And the bottom line is get a grip, that we're reaching into the life of another, that we're connecting with other believers and we're helping others get connected and that we're uh, being disciples and that we're also making disciples, which is really the fullness of the Great Commission that we've been given as Christians. And can you imagine if all of us were doing all three of these things? If all of us were really reaching, I mean really reaching, if all of us were really connecting and living deeply connected lives, and if all of us were being discipled and all of us were discipling, can you imagine how rich this faith community would be? Can you imagine the kind of impact that we would have? We would be thriving. It would be incredible. And so this morning, I'm super excited to talk about uh, the third element of our mission strategy, to talk about uh, discipleship. Now, I've told you before that I think a lot of pastors have a soapbox, and that's all we like to most commonly preach through books of the Bible. But if any pastor had a soapbox, this is my soapbox. It's talking about discipleship. I just love talking discipleship. And so Mark chapter 3, 1 is where we will uh, start uh, together this morning. Mark chapter 3, 1. And I just want to kind of build a little bit of context before we get uh, more specifically into discipleship. Mark 3, verse 1. It says this. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. Stop there. Can we stop for a second? Notice that word, again. Wink, wink. He's faithful, right? Again. Again, he's, he's faithful. Jesus himself uh, was committed to being with the people of God. Again, he went to the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, there's a man with a, a withered hand in this fellowship of people, and Jesus sees him, and he has compassion. And so what does he do? Let's keep reading on, 2 through 6. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So let's move fast, but we want to get some context for where we're going for the rest of our time together. Here's the deal. In the synagogue, there's a man sitting among them with a a, a withered hand. Also present in the synagogue are some Pharisees. Now, this was the most powerful religious party of the day, made up of middle-class businessmen who were really concerned with keeping every letter of the Old Testament law. But they also added to it to really prevent Uh, anybody getting even close to uh, breaking the law. And so they were really concerned with honoring God, but what they ended up doing in being so consumed with getting every letter of the law, what they ended up doing is they ended up oppressing people because certain things like utensils, they didn't want them to use certain utensils. And what if you could only afford one utensil, right? And so they would oppress people and add this extra biblical amount of uh, laws onto the scripture. And in the New Testament, we read about these Pharisees as they were very prideful. They were very religious, legalistic uh, men. And what they're looking for in this moment as they walk into, uh, Jesus walks into this room, is they're looking to see, we know about this guy. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Now, as you know, the Sabbath is designed by God to be a day of rest, a day of just cease creating and just be with the Lord and uh, just just rest. And that was uh, part of the law. And they so wanted to nail Jesus that they were going to consider healing on the Sabbath, that if Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, they so wanted to nail him that they'd say, well, well healing is work, right? Because you you're doing something that, that, that you can do and that's, that's work. And so they're watching and it says they're, they're watching so that they might accuse him. They want to accuse Jesus. Now you've seen this before, right? When somebody does well, they kind of instantly become a target, don't they? Remember back in high school, ladies, right? There's a new girl in the school and if she's attractive and the boys are interested with her, oh, look out, right? The ladies just get crazy. They get crazy, right? Those are our boys, right? Stay away. And, and Jesus... Jesus is in a position where he's doing very well, and these religious leaders of their day, they're upset, and they're threatened by him, and so there's a target on him. Now, listen, Jesus has done all kinds of good for their communities. I mean, all kinds of good. He's healing, he's teaching in ways that are just mind-boggling to people, and the scriptures have prophesied about him. He is fulfilling what the scriptures have said about him, that he is their long-awaited Messiah, Per the scriptures that they so consume themselves with. But when he actually arrives, they are so self-righteous that they don't want to have anything uh, to do with him. That they are so full of themselves and they're so abusing the scriptures to really serve their own needs and to puff themselves up. That they're so self-righteous that they can't see that they need righteousness in him and not in and of themselves. And so be very mindful as we read through this that we cannot, even as Christians, let this heart be in us, that we can say we trust in the the grace of Jesus to make us right before God, but even in our own minds sometimes, in our own hearts sometimes, we can say something, but really be seeking a righteousness that is not from the Lord, but a righteousness that is in how we perform. And so just let that be a a, a little warning to you, a a mini-sermon within the sermon. Uh, But what does Jesus do? Look look at verse 4. He silences the Pharisees, doesn't he? He, he silences them. He, he reads their mind. He calls out the, uh, the, just the unrighteousness and the ugliness of their hearts. That they, would, they would actually seek to prevent uh, a needy person from being healed. And he just silences them in that moment. And then he heals uh, that man's hand. And I just love this about Jesus. It's one of the many things that I love about Jesus. That Jesus is, can I say this? Jesus is a dude. He's just, he, he is a, a man's Man, he's never afraid to stick it to the man, right? He just, he sticks it to these guys. I mean, many people have this mental picture of Jesus that he's, you know, he's got, you know, fluffy, blown dry hair with a, a white shower robe on that's, you know, it's perfectly white and crisp and beautiful and clean. And, and we, we have this picture of Jesus, but he was a, he was a man's man. And, and, and it's just amazing how he just sticks it to these guys. And, you know, it's, I, I think we need to see more of that in our, in our culture today because I think, you look around the population of churches, especially across America, and the ratio of women to men is just astronomically uh, different. And a lot of that has to do with we don't really understand just how masculine Jesus was, how, how Jesus really stood up and, and, and did what he needed to do in the appropriate times. And in this moment, he is calling these guys out. And that was a very bold and hard thing that he had to do, but he needed to do it to capture the hearts of these 
Pharisees. And so he's a man's man, carpenter with callous hands, not afraid to stick it to the self-righteous if he needed to. And then verse 6 ends with, in light of all this, the Pharisees are furious. Didn't stop him, but they're furious. And so they start to rally with the Herodians so that they might destroy him. And so for the, the bulk of the ministry of Jesus, he is being hunted down and people are conspiring against him how they might end this Jesus of Nazareth. They are angry. Didn't stop Jesus. So Now let's read on. Verses 7 through 12. Again, we're getting context here for where we're going when we talk on discipleship. It says this. It says, Jesus then withdrew his, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edumia, from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's a lot of people. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them, the unclean spirits, not to make him known. And so here's what we have at this point. Again, building some context. The, the, the word is really spread about this Jesus of Nazareth, about the miracles specifically of Jesus. And so naturally around Jesus are just tons and tons of people coming to see this. I mean, wouldn't you see that if you heard what was going on? They, they come. So we obviously have the Pharisees who are conspiring against him. We have the people who are just they're curious. What is this all about? It's like, you know, when you are driving down the road and you see a car accident. You slow down and you want to peek, right? People are curious. You also, you read here that there are demons, unclean spirits. There's demonic activity that's certainly heightened around the ministry of Jesus because of just the, the threat of all eternity that's happening in this moment. And then, of course, there are the, the sick people who are coming to Jesus for healing. So many that they're, they're threatening to, to crush him as they want to just touch him. There's so many around him. And now, here's what we need to see this morning. Look at verse 7. It's, it's one word that I really want us to catch. It's the word crowds. That there are crowds. And often around Jesus, there are, are crowds and crowds and crowds of people. And what I want to ask you is, are you a part of the crowd? Well, you're here. So you're a part of the crowd. Right? We're, we're a part of the crowd. Let me ask you, are you a consumer of Jesus, of the things of the Lord? Now, of course we are consumers of the Lord, right? He has so much to give. We have very little. He has so much to give, and we have so much to receive uh, from him. But listen, we, we've said this before. It's important for us to, to move from the crowd and to move very quickly into the committed. Scripture speaks of the committed as disciples of Jesus. Verse 7 here speaks of the crowds. Verse 9 speaks of the disciples. And if you're okay with writing in your Bible, it really disturbed my, my oldest son when I write in my Bible. He's like, what are, what are you doing? But it's okay to write in your Bible. And if you're okay with that, grab a pen and circle crowds and circle for contrast, verse 9, disciples. It's important to see that there are crowds and then there are the committed. There are disciples around Jesus, always around Jesus. Even today, there will be crowds and there will be the committed around Jesus. People like Jesus. People like the idea of a healer. People like the idea of someone who has something to give me. People like the idea of his teachings, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. People like that. People like the idea of humanitarianism and caring for the poor. And so there will always be crowds, but Jesus also differentiates between the, the crowds and the committed, those who are true disciples of Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 14, a little later in the ministry of Jesus, we see G Jesus do something kind of unlikely. It's, it's kind of crazy. He starts to, to talk about being a disciple. And he's got all these crowds around him. And now he starts to talk about being a disciple. And he says things like, you've heard it before, like count the cost. You've heard that before? He says you need to count the cost. He says things like, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. What's the cross? It's not just something that Jesus hung on. It's something that many criminals hung on, right? It was the Roman execution method, carefully crafted by the, the Romans so that they could uh, torture people and really threaten everybody else to obey us lest you be hanging on a cross. And so when Jesus is saying things like, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me, 
very likely in that culture, as he's saying that over his shoulder as they're watching him teach, in the horizon very likely are Roman criminals hanging on Roman crosses. And so they're seeing that, and it's so much more real to them than it is to us that we'd be willing to take up our cross and follow him. The image of those children in Nigeria who have been slashed in the persecution that their families have been experiencing for their faith. It's unbelievable. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm differentiating between the crowd and the committed. I mean, who does that? Who does that? I mean, I'm a pastor, and we like crowds of people, right? And in our culture today, crowd equals success. Like, if you've got a great big church, you're successful as a minister, Right? Or maybe some of you played sports in high school or in college, and there's a big crowd. That means you're successful. Jesus doesn't seem to think so, does he? He starts to weed out the crowds. For the first year of ministry, there's tons and tons and tons and tons of people of his three-year ministry. But then he starts to turn them away. And here's why. Because he knows that people are going to bail eventually, and so he wants to make sure that he goes ahead and, and, and weeds those who are going to bail wants to lead them out because he's calling the committed to rise to the top. It's really not difficult to get a crowd. The scriptures even talk about that, that all you have to do is tickle people's ears and tell them what they want to hear or even give them not the whole counsel of God, the entire Bible as we're called to do, but give them pieces of the Bible because there are certain pieces that are more fun to hear than other. I think about at my house, um, on top of our refrigerator is that classic orange uh, pumpkin trick-or-treat basket bucket you know what I'm talking about and it's been full of candy and it finally just ran out I'm so thankful that it's finally run out because every day we hear can I have a piece of candy can I have some candy can I have some candy and my kids love candy and 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 they would eat it for breakfast lunch and dinner if I would let them but if I let them eat candy for breakfast lunch and dinner they would die right <laughs> and that wouldn't be good and so we make sure that they have more listen if Jesus just let his people simply consume his very desirable miracles, and people want that, if that's all he let them have, then they would die apart from him because they wouldn't be called to count the cost. They wouldn't be called to be, hey, a committed follower of Jesus and not just part of the crowd. Now, his miracles were there to, to show that he is God, to, to really elevate his deity. His miracles were also there to give us uh, just a glimpse of the kingdom, right? that we're going to be a part of for all eternity, that kingdom come, that we can see that there will be no more pain, that there will be no more suffering. And we get a glimpse of the kingdom on this earth because of the miracles of Jesus. But eventually, people have to stop just being consumers and say, even without that Jesus, I will still follow you. I will still follow you. Because not all people are going to receive those miracles. Not all people, like the children that we saw in those pictures, are going to receive Cush, easy faith in following Jesus. It can be challenging. And so Jesus says, you have to become a disciple. You have to become committed, committed. That you say, yes, I see my need for Jesus. I see my need for him based on what he has done, that he has given his life as a substitution for my sin, that I am sinful and I am in need of a Savior. And because of my sin, I've been separated from God and will be separated from God for all eternity. Therefore, I need a mediator. And there's one mediator between God and man, and it is Christ Jesus. And so I trust in him and what he has done. His life is a substitution for my life. Theologians of old have called it the great exchange. His righteousness for our unrighteousness, right? My sin for him. And we just trade it. It's amazing. We need that we need to trust in him and not to say just give me give me give me give me all your miracles but say god i give myself to you wholeheartedly i just trust in you i want to follow you and become a, a disciple i'm following you lord so for the rest of our time let's let's dig into disciple we've seen jesus differentiate and just because you're hanging around jesus just because you're going to church doesn't make you a true christian doesn't make you right with god but you have to be a disciple. Now, the word disciple means uh, a learner, that you're a learner under a specific teacher and that you're a careful follower of that teacher's teachings. And so the, the scriptures will speak of 
disciples. There we'll speak of disciples of John the Baptizer. It will speak of disciples of the Pharisees even had disciples. It will speak of disciples of, of Moses even, but most often speak of disciples of Jesus. Those who not only followed Jesus, but those people who actually were adherents to his teaching and they, they trusted in him and followed his teaching and his way of living. In fact, we weren't even called Christians until um, Acts chapter 11, verse 26 in the, the city of Antioch. Before then, we were called Disciples. We were disciples of Jesus. More than just a consumeristic crowd, we were followers and adherents to the teachings of the Lord Jesus. And then after Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what does Jesus command of us? You remember? It's our great commission. Put up on the screen for you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what we're called to do by Jesus. Are we called simply to gather a crowd? No. We're called to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then to teach them, it says. That's the disciple. To to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. Everything. To teach them how to to grow, to follow Jesus. And so listen, we're not just making converts, but we're actually seeking to make people who really follow the way of the Lord. And so now, uh, let's move into our responsibility here a little bit. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus, first, we are to become disciples. So we need to make sure, am I the crowd or am I the committed? Am I a disciple of Jesus? Have I trusted in him? We are to become disciples and then we are also, according to that text, that we are to, we're to make disciples of all nations. That's why we send people like Jacob to Nigeria. That's why we send uh, 10% of our, our giving in the church goes right back out, all the way to the ends of the earth, right? We, we want to do that. We want to make disciples of all nations. Cool thing, living in Rosendale, one of the most ethnically diverse uh, neighborhoods in all of the city, one of the coolest things is that the nations have come to us, and so we can reach the nations even in this strategic neighborhood within the city. And so, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? You become one. And then, are you making disciples? You know, one of the most frightening passages of Scripture for me is Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you've been around the church for a little while, you've heard that a ton. Hear that. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, just because you profess to be a Christian, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Doesn't mean that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that there will be some that I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. But but I said, Lord, Lord, I professed to be a Christian. So let me just beg you, be certain that you are a disciple, that you have so placed faith, trust, complete trust in Jesus, that you've banked your whole life onto him, and your life then reflects that. We don't earn it, but if we've really trusted in him, our life reflects that. It's more than just saying, I'm a Christian. I would also call us to uh, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 5, where Paul calls us to examine ourselves, to be certain whether you're in the faith. And so we examine ourselves. So if this stirs something in you, examine yourself. I don't want to scare those who are right with the Lord, but for those who aren't, be certain that you're in the faith. The Bible calls us to that. Now, our first responsibility, be a disciple. Our second one is to make disciples. Make disciples. I'll say it this way. Every single Christian should be committed to discipleship. We should be committed to discipleship, that we should be looking to receive discipleship. We should be looking to provide discipleship, and we should be looking to encourage other people to move into discipleship. That ultimately, as we've said throughout this whole series, those hands that we've been looking at are the hands of Jesus. And then we, as the the hands of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 12, are 
now also seeking to be the hands of Jesus to the world. And so we are connected with Christ, but we're also seeking to connect with other people and to disciple other people, to receive it, to provide it, and to help people, encourage people to be disciples. Broadly, we're all disciples of Jesus. We're all disciples of Jesus if we've trusted in him. And he's our primary example of how to engage in it. And so let's, let's read on and see how he does it so that we can then be about discipleship and discipling others and receiving other people. Look at verses 13 uh, through 19. It says, And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave, uh, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boerges, and this is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. And so here what Jesus is doing is he's setting for us a precedent that we must carefully pass on the faith through discipleship. He's showing us this is what you are to do. And so what I want to do is I want to start here with the precedent of Jesus and just kind of look at some specific things that he does. And then I want to kind of bounce around to some really important key texts about discipleship. And I think each of these texts that we look at will kind of bring out a, a, a different element of discipleship. So we'll just kind of bang through these elements one by one. And because this is truth, this is God's word about how to pass on the faith, you can also know that some of these have great overlap into other areas of life, in business, in raising up leaders. They, they kind of overlap because it's truth. And so this will be helpful for us on many, many levels, but specifically with regards to passing on our faith. Here's the first element of biblical discipleship. That is that discipleship is relational. You might want to write these down. Uh, here we meet uh, Jesus' 12 disciples, according to uh, what we read here. And, and these are disciples who would become apostles, those who are commissioned to keep the faith uh, moving after he ascends uh, back into heaven after his death. And they are Simon. He's the impulsive one. right? You know Simon Peter. He's the, the one who becomes a spokesman for the disciples. But as you read throughout the scriptures about Simon Peter, he was quick to put his foot in his mouth and do things. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. You got the brothers James and John. These are fishermen. He calls them the, thun the sons of thunder, right? his boys. right? I love this. Andrew, Peter's brother, who is a fisherman with Peter. We have Philip. He's a hometown boy uh, with Peter and Andrew. Uh, Philip introduces Jesus to Bartholomew. There's also Matthew, who's a former tax collector. So I'm sure our Jewish disciples uh, were, were struggling with this guy coming into the mix. Uh, there's Thomas, who's famous for doubting Jesus, but he's also um, less famous for uh, being the guy who brought the gospel to India initially, uh, out of the Roman Empire. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. There's Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, or the Zealot. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the treasurer, who whenever... Um, the name Judas comes up in scripture. They make sure to differentiate between that Judas and this Judas. That This is the Judas who sells Jesus out for chump change. And so he's not a true disciple. But here uh, in verse 13, we see that Jesus kind of goes up on this mountain, doesn't he? He goes up on this mountain. And uh, throughout the Bible, when someone goes up on the mountain, it's, it's often seen as a place for somebody to, to meet with God. Like think Moses and the, the, the commandments. And here Jesus goes up on the mountain to meet with God. This is a very important moment. He's going to appoint his 12 disciples, his uh, apostles. And Luke 6, we read in Luke 6 that he is there all night long, laboring, discerning who are to be his disciples. And when the day came, he calls his disciples uh, from among the crowd. So there are the disciples broad, and then he just really calls these, these specific 12. And I'll I'll say this, that it's important to note that he prayerfully chose those people who he is going to more specifically pour his life into. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't choose those people who had a history of being you know, the all-stars, the, the smart, those who excel. He didn't choose the cream of the crop from among the culture. He didn't choose the best of the best of the best. In fact, he chose the people that would have been overlooked, and these people were 
young teenage guys who are out doing work, which the fact that they're out doing work and not getting an education in their teenage years says that they were actually kind of the, the, the lower end of the academic and social spectrum. And so I, I would say this for, for all of us, that we don't just half-heartedly or randomly hope that our lives are impacting other people, specifically in passing on the faith and discipling other people, but instead, like Christ, be very careful and prayerful by asking God to point to you who you might be able to pour your your life into. Now, Jesus didn't necessarily go looking for the 12. Instead, he was out doing ministry, and he sees some guys fishing, and he sees a tax collector, and he, he appoints them. And so I would venture to say that the people that you need to be prayerfully uh, considering to be someone that you pour your life into and discipleship probably already in your your life somewhere and so this is how jesus did it and he, he chooses the, the 12 and, and what did jesus do look at verse 14 again it says he called them so that they might be with him he called them so that they might be with him but this is really good because i think a lot of times especially in church culture when we think of discipleship we picture a classroom setting right like sunday school class like that's discipleship. We sit down and we just, we just have a lesson and that's the discipleship. But he says, it says that he called them so that they might be with him. It's, it's about being with the person so that you can see how that person responds in certain situations. It's about being with that person so that you can see how they handle when their kids are rebellious, right? Some of you have been there with me. It's about being with that person so you can see how they interact in the community. It's about being with that person. You can see how they talk to somebody who doesn't love Jesus or when they have somebody confront them about that. It's about being with them to see how they pray, to see how they study the scripture. It's, a, it's, it's relational. It's rubbing shoulders with people and being with them. That's a huge piece of discipleship. I remember this hit me um, back when I was uh, in central Massachusetts in Princeton area. I remember um, we were doing some ministry in our home one night, and there was this girl that my wife had kind of been just spending time with and pouring her life into. And uh, we were praying uh, one night together, a group of us, and this girl said something that is very specific, something that I say all the time when I pray, and I remember just such a little moment like that, but when she prayed that, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, and it's never left me, that they're not just getting what I teach them, but they're getting things that I do on the side, like when I pray, that's how they start to pray. Over the years, I've also seen this in a negative sense, that when I was very sarcastic, that they would get very sarcastic, and to the point where we got inappropriate at times and discipleship is relational oftentimes there's there's so much more that's caught than what's taught right just being around you that's a huge piece of discipleship thinking back through my formidable years as as a as a youth there may be i don't know two maybe at best three sermons or teachings that somebody poured into my life that really stick with me but you know what really really sticks with me as I learned from this red-headed counselor at Christian camp when I was in elementary school, he had a nickname, Weeder. So I guess at camp he had an accident with a weed eater, a weed whacker. I remember that you can actually be a college student and love Jesus and be cool. And I learned that from him. It just so impressed me as a little kid. I remember learning from Bill, who was not remotely, remotely, remotely cool. I mean, this guy was not cool by the world standards, but I learned from him what it looked like to really be passionate about people's eternity and where they're going to be for all of eternity. I learned from Kevin, who was a guy who was just a year older than me, what it looked like to be mature in the Lord as a young man. I learned from a guy named Eric what it meant to just be passionate about prayer and to really, really believe in the power of prayer. I couldn't tell you what these guys taught me with their Bibles open. Specifically, don't get me wrong, it's in my head. The scriptures that you learn over the years, they're, they're there. You might not recall specific sermons and specific teachings and specific coffee meetings and what they said. It's there. But what really stands out, the things that I caught along the way and how they interacted and what they did in their own personal time. And so discipleship is relational. And some of you, as you hear the word discipleship, you think, Oh, no, I don't have any time 
I have a crazy college schedule. I have a crazy work schedule. I have kids. I have this. I have that. I got exams. It's crazy. You do have time. We all have time. We do something that I call doubling your time. You know, you can do one thing that you need to get done, and you can also do something that's of eternal value at the, the same time. Is there anything that you're doing this week, this afternoon, that you can call somebody who's younger in the faith or younger in age here with you and, and bring them alongside of you? I brought my man Luke with me to, to winter camp last winter, and we just hung out and got to talk about the Lord, got to pray together. You can do things where it's doubling your time, right? I love to double my time with my, my kids, my son. My oldest one, he eats it up. This morning, we came in early to set up this place. You know, this isn't actually a, a church, even though it looks like it. It's actually a cafeteria. That's why the floors are disgusting in here. Right? We set this place up. I bring my son along, and I'm talking to him on the ride over. He actually prays from my house to here with me and learns the, the importance of prayer. We spend time. We talk. We do things. Double your time. My wife sometimes will just call up a girl who's in the air and say, you want to come to the grocery store with me? And they have great, amazing conversation. And she gets to see how my wife interacts with my kids when they melt down, when they go nuts in the grocery store. You always say, my kids will never do that. They will, I promise you. He appointed the 12, whom he also named disciples, so that they might be with him. Here's the next piece of this relational bit. It says, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. See, these disciples... There were meaningful relationships to Jesus, yes. And there were great friends and supporters in his ministry. But let's not lose sight of the ultimate purpose that he's training them. He's relating with them so that he can send them out. So he can push them out of, from under his wing and let them fly. So he's, he's prepping them to, to preach. And so as you track the ministry of Jesus, there's certain points along the way where he says, all right, you've been around me enough. Go do something, all right? And so he starts by modeling it for them, and then he moves into letting them do it, and he's still there with them, and then he sends them out and says, do it without me. And it's a stretch of faith for them, but he does it, and that's relational. He sends them out for a purpose. And so when we're discipling people, we've got to keep our minds and our, our focus on we're, we're sending them out to do something, to be a parent, to be a follower of Jesus, to be uh, one who shares their faith, to, to, to be a father, to be a good husband. We're training them, we're preparing them so that we can send them out to, to do what they need to do in the Lord. A few more, moving a lot faster on these. Next, discipleship is informational. Discipleship is informational. Uh, look up on the screen. I want to give you 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Here's what Paul says uh, to Timothy. And we're going to give you an NASB translation because this is the one I memorized it in. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is such an awesome Bible memory verse if you do that, and I would encourage you to. Uh, yes, discipleship is relational, that so much more is caught than is taught, but it is also informational, that there's important information that we need to pass on and that we need to protect and preserve, and so we pass it on. And so notice how Paul treats the information in this passage here as he talks in this letter to uh, his disciple, young Timothy. He says, the things, these truths, which you have heard from me. And what are these things? It's the, the truths of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, the training that he has given him. It's incredible, valuable information. He says, what are you to do with this information? The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you are to entrust those things to someone else. It means to commit it to them for protection. Maybe some of you have had a parent or a grandparent entrust something to you, like, I don't know, a diamond. It's been an engagement diamond that's kind of been passed on through the generations, and you They've entrusted it to you for protection and for you to pass it on. You have the sense of the value of what they've given you. They've entrusted it to you like a family heirloom. And this is how we should see the truths of Jesus. That they're priceless, valuable, to be protected and to be passed on. He says, entrust it. And who are we to entrust it to? We're to entrust it to faithful men. So listen, you, if you're going to disciple somebody... You're going to pass valuable information on 
Find those people who are faithful who are going to take this seriously and won't waste your... I'm not calling you to waste your time with people who aren't serious. Pour your life into somebody who's serious and you want to entrust these truths to because it's, it's valuable, valuable information. And so this kind of leads us to our next element. Discipleship is, uh, it is relational, it's informational, but it's also generational. And we're going to stay on the same passage, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 2. And I want to point out in this passage that there are four generations. You need to understand that discipleship is about passing on and passing on and passing on. What you'll see, generation one, who's doing the speaking? The Apostle Paul. Generation two, he's speaking to Timothy. Generation three, he says, Timothy, I want you to find some faithful men, pass it on to them. And then generation four is the faithful men will be able to teach others also. And so discipleship is generational. That we are doing discipleship when we are taking the truths of Jesus and we are passing them on to people who will pass them on to people who will pass them on. That yes, we're to share our faith in evangelism, but that we're also in our great commission to make disciples and pass it on. Think about it. We're always only one generation away from departure from this. If it stops with us, it stops with us. You grow up to be a father, mother, and you fail to pass it on to your children. It stops in your family life. Pass it on. Pass it on. Listen to to Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Can I read this? Titus 2, 3 through 6. It says this. Older women, likewise, this is Paul. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, love the instruction here to the older women. They're to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanders. Don't be a drunk. Nothing's crazier than a drunk grandma, right? <laughs> Instead... I mean, you've seen Grandma at the Christmas party. Instead, they are to do what? They are to train and to teach what is good to the younger women. To pass it on. How to, how to be a good wife. How to be a mother. How to care for your home and honor your, your husband. And here's the point. We're to use our age. Whatever age you are, we're all older than somebody. To use our experience, we all have more experience than somebody. Use our wisdom to, to serve and to pour into to somebody else. In, in our culture, there's been this growing divide, and we hit on this last week, between younger and older. And so we glorify youth, and we just exalt youth, don't we? And in doing so, we, we segregate youth. And so today, the truth is that many people just get freaked out about how do I engage teenagers and and those who are younger, they have a language all their own. They don't even have face-to-face conversations anymore. They just, you know, I mean, like there's this YouTube video out with a bunch of like middle school kids sitting beside each other but texting each other instead of talking to each other. It's crazy, right? And so it freaks people out. How do I even engage this culture that I don't, I don't get? But listen, we, we got to figure it out. We have to stop being so exalting of youth that it's so beyond us and I just can't even co- connect. And the trend, as I talked about last week in churches, is just to extend youth group, right? And so now churches don't just have a youth ministry. They have a college ministry. And beyond the college ministry, they have a singles ministry. And beyond the singles ministry, they have a young marriage ministry. And beyond the young marriage ministry, they have a young marriage with children's ministry. And it's important to train people specifically. But what does that do? You segregate people. And what you have is a bunch of people who don't know anything about their stage of life trying to learn from people who don't know anything about that stage of life, right? It's like the blind leading the blind, right? I don't mean that as an insult. There are things that I don't know about. I need older people in my life. And so what does Paul suggest? He says, let's get the older women to train the younger women. Let's get the older men to train the younger men. Let's not have just an older person's ministry, a senior's ministry, and then a younger person's ministry so that they never have to see each other in church. No. What can we do to get them together, to do life together, to live out the faith together and to disciple and to grow and to learn? I've been asking God 
for several years now for this church for some gray hair. Not for myself. <laughs> he can hold out on that if he wants to. I'm asking God to send us more gray hair, more, more wisdom, more experience. Now, I'm young. I get that. I'm asking for, for God to give us more wisdom and experience. Now, I, like young Timothy, will really resonate with what the Apostle Paul says. He says, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth, but set an example and preach it, baby. Right? I'm going to do that because I'm confident in this, and I'm confident in the Lord. But man, as we have older people among us who can pour into the younger people, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Listen, I, it's crazy to me how in our culture we long, we long for retirement. Right? Someday I'm going to be retired and move away from this place, from Florida, get a house, and just be with a bunch of other people with white hair. That would be awesome, right? Listen. We have time on our hands, and now we want to use that time just to focus in on self. This is the time where we should crank it up a notch, right? Say, I can now, with the time that I have, pour into people who are younger than me, who need to, to learn from me what it looks like to have a healthy marriage, who need to learn from me what it looks like to, 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 to raise kids who love the Lord. Crank it up a notch, right? Discipleship is generational. We're passing it on. We're passing it on. You're all older than somebody in age. And experience and wisdom and knowledge about some area, pass it on. Here's our last one for this morning. Really important. Discipleship is parental. Discipleship is parental. Listen, if as a parent, I pass on baseball to my son, which I will, but do so to the neglect of the Bible, I have failed as a parent. This could be an entire sermon in and of itself, and I think it has been. You can review the archives. But let me just say it one more time. Discipleship is parental. That we should all look to pour into other people's lives, and everybody has a parent. But it is the responsibility of parents to disciple their children. One passage um, that, that I think portrays it really well is Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Before we read it, I, I just want to say that I, this passage, Psalm 127, 3 through 5, I think really displays what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 3. Remember, he's preparing them so that he might do what? He might send them out. And likewise, as parents, we are working with our kids and serving our kids for probably limited 18 years. And then we're going to send them out and we're going to sob like babies when they go off to college, right? And so we need to be very mindful of this. And so Psalm 127, 3 through 5, I'm going to read it. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I love that passage. You need to memorize that passage. I have a picture of my kids here in my Bible, and on the back of that picture is this verse written, love this passage. Notice here that children are what? They're a heritage, they're a blessing, they're a reward, they are not a burden, they are not a risk that you take when you have sex, they are a blessing, they are a reward. And parents and future parents, listen, they are like arrows, it says. What do you do with arrows? You shoot them. I'm not saying shoot your kids. <laughs> saying Shoot them out, right? We're called to, to shoot them out. You want a quiver that is full of, of arrows, it says. That's why at this church we love kids. It gets a little crazy in the first half of the service when they're in here. It's a little noisy. It's a little distracting. But it's a reminder that God has blessed us with children. We love kids. We love kids. They're a, a blessing. I was reading yesterday a New York Times article that was talking about the cost of living in Manhattan and other cities across America. And it said the greatest hindrance to city living is children. I'm like, that's, that's true. But they're saying that you want to live the high life, right? It's glorified in all the movies in Manhattan, in L.A., in Chicago. If you want to live that life, kids are a burden. Kids are not a burden, according to the scripture. They are a blessing. 
My family has chosen to, we're going to suck it up and we're going to serve this city with kids, even though we're going to live in a small place for the rest of our lives. We're not going to have a big backyard. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be expensive. But kids are not a burden. When Becky and I go out in public with three kids, sometimes people look at us like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> like it's so sad. It's good. We are blessed. We are so blessed. You hear that and look at us like we're Mormon. But listen, no, it's a great thing. We have filled our quiver and we are blessed. It is not a, a burden. And one day we want to shoot them. <laughs> one day we want to shoot them out. That's what we want to do. That means when they're 18 years old, we're going to draw back the bow. Hopefully later. Maybe my daughter's 30. I don't know. We're going to draw back the bow. And we're going to, we're going to shoot them out to hit the bullseye that God has in mind for them, that he's designed them for. My greatest fear as a parent, and your greatest fear as a parent or a potential parent, is that your kids would leave the house. Not that they wouldn't leave the house and not be a great athlete. Not that they would leave the house and not be financially secure as you want them to be. Not that they would leave the house not heading towards Boston Latin or Harvard or BC. But that they would leave the house and leave Jesus behind. That's my greatest fear. As a parent, what do you value in your kid? As potential parents, what do you value? What does your time tell them that you value? That they grow up and be athletic like daddy? That they grow up and be on the, the prom queen court like mommy? Or that they would grow up, and if they don't have any of that stuff, that they would grow up and follow Jesus? put my kids to bed and I pray for them every night. God, I pray that he would be a man of God. God, I pray that he would be a man of God. God, I pray that she would be a woman of God. God, I pray for his future wife and his future wife and her future husband, that they would love Jesus, that we would have grandchildren who love Jesus. And thinking ahead, you need to be thinking about the next 20 years of your life. Think ahead, think ahead. And so here's what I can do. I can plead with God on their behalf. Please, God, please save them. And I can disciple them. I can pour into them. I can double my time with them. More than double my time. I can wake up in the morning and crack the Bible with my, my son rather than having to flip on the news and see what's going on with the stock market. I can pour into them. A few other passages of Scripture. Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6-9, through nine, you want to get into this if you're a parent, you're going to be a parent. It really talks about what it looks like to daily walk with your kid in such a way that they would see what it means to, to know the Lord, that you're constantly having conversations with your kid about the Lord. I'm constantly asking my, my kids questions. Hey, buddy, do you know why I did that? Do you know why I said that? Do you know when I was standing in line at that store and I asked deeper questions about their life and said I'd love to connect with them outside of work? You know why I said that? And they get that. And double your time. Ephesians 6.6 6 is another one. Write these down. This is some homework for you. If you're not a parent, listen, start practicing. It's never too early. And I mean that. I'll never forget um, talking to Sam uh, just the other day. And he was telling me about just some of the crazy stories about working with a kid named Byron up at the, the apartment complex. Man, love that. Dude, you are practicing right now. He was like, yeah, it was crazy. I'm like, yeah, parenting is crazy. <laughs> it is not easy. Making disciples, right? And if you're not a parent, you're getting ready for the big day, right? It's like parenting is the Olympics, and you're training for the Olympics, right? The day that you're going to pull back the bow and skillfully shoot out your arrows, right? Send your kids out into the world. I'm praying for that for all of us. We would have a generation below us that loves Jesus and makes a big impact. The potential, I think, more lies with them than with us in this area at this point in time. Talk with some of my other friends who are also starting churches in the Boston area. We all have kids. There's actually five guys who started churches in the Boston area. All had kids within a week of each other. It's crazy. And we always talk about, hey, can you imagine 40 years from now when our kids are growing up, what this city is going to look like? So excited. So excited. The Bible often talks about our, our faith being parental in other ways. 
That's why you'll see the Bible talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Constantly reminding us, generational. This is generational. And it's parental. It's passed down. That's why it will say, fear the Lord, you and your son and your son's son. Always saying, pass it on, pass it on. This is our responsibility, parents. We don't hand this off to a youth ministry. We don't hand this off to a children's ministry. It is our responsibility. We will do youth ministry at this church. We have one that launches tomorrow for the first time. It's awesome. We will do children's ministry at this church. We have kids learning right now. But it's only supplemental. And it's catalytic so that you can go home on the ride home and say, what did you learn about, honey? Hey, buddy, what did you sing about? What's that craft all about? So that we can train our kids and take advantage of teachable moments. We have a lot of resources to help you guys that we're aware of. We put some of them on the website. So if you want to go to our website and go to resources, different categories, go to that category. It talks about marriage and family. It's got some good stuff. But listen, discipleship is parental, primarily. Some of us are going to disciple people that have parents who also love the Lord, and that's great. You're doubling up. That's awesome. But we need to know that it starts with the parents. Discipleship's relational. Discipleship is informational, it's generational, and it's parental. And I just pray that we're going to really be serious about making disciples as a church. And we're not just making converts. We're not just trying to build a worship service. But we're trying to build a people. As a new church, just over two years old, we're trying to build a people who are committed to Jesus, not just a crowd. One of our core values as a church is that discipleship is essential for raising up a future generation of faithful believers. And so we need a disciple. We need a disciple. We need to live a faith that's two-handed. It's not just me. It's me passing it on to someone else. And why do we do that? As we said with Reach, and as we said with Connect, we do it because it's what he did. And what he did, we do. We want to be people who follow Jesus. And he disciples us. We're his disciples. We disciple others. We pass it on. What he did, we do. I want to encourage you to begin to identify somebody in your life that you can start to pour into. I love what's going on in this church. I was thinking through it. It's about any given day. I think any given day of the week in this church, there are people getting together. There will be a younger lady at the home of an older lady. Older meaning young 30s. <laughs> and they're working through scripture and observing how she does life and how she honors her husband and how she loves her husband and how she trains her kids. Any given day of the week, there will be two guys sitting at Panera Bread. I love, love it when I walk into Panera Bread or to Starbucks and see some of our guys there, I about flip out. This is it. This is what we're doing. This is what I long for. And they're going through the scriptures together. Any given day, there's an upperclassman with a younger, lowerclassman connecting, talking about the Lord together, strategizing as to how they might reach their school for Jesus. Any given day, there's a young professional coming home from work, exhausted after a long day, and bypassing their house and pulling into the Washington Beach apartment complex so they can pour into the lives of some younger kids in a mentorship relationship. My heart just explodes at the thought of this. This is discipleship. This is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is not, hey, do you want Jesus? Say yes to Jesus. My work here is done. But this is, now let me show you how to follow Jesus all the days of your life. Many of you are doing it. And I'm so excited about that. But as Paul says, let's excel still more. Let's excel still more. I've loved these three weeks together, going through reaching and connecting and discipling. It's been really uh, encouraging for me. One, because as I talk through this, I look at where we're at and we're doing it. Many of you, are you're, you're doing it. I'm also really excited because I just think about 2013 and think, man, the opportunities are endless for us to reach these neighborhoods for, for Christ. And so I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God to move in this year. We strategically looked at our mission strategy as a church in this first month of 2013. I'm just going to ask God to move in 2013. And would you join me in asking God to move in you and to move through you? You know that in order for us 
to be the hands of Jesus, we need Jesus to deeply touch us. And so let's ask him to do that so that we can go and to reach and to connect and disciple. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing among us. We pray for more of it, God. Pray for more of it in 2013. God, pray that you would deeply touch us, Lord, that we would draw near to you and you to us, and we would be your disciples who have been reached by you, we've been connected into a vibrant and meaningful relationship with you, and that we are disciples, we are following you closely. God, may we turn around as people who have been so touched and impacted by Jesus, we would turn around and do this in the lives of other people. God, do your work in us and do your work through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.